Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Mr. Hill, it's me. You? Look, sugar, I'm busy trying to find the next big hit of 1952. I got no time to listen to the stuff you write. But my songs are beautiful. I got this new one, More Love Than the Love You Dreamed When You Dreamed of Love. Baby, what do you think this is, Europe? You can't sell a song like that. Give me something like that new Frankie Lawrence hit. Put some parsley in your pants. Put some parsley in your pants. I can feel it when we dance. Bada bada bum 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 bada bum bum. That's not me, Mr. Hill. I'm part of an apostolic succession of songwriters. Do you know what Jerome Kern once said to me? Uh, what, what? I don't believe we've been introduced. Jerome Kern said that to me. Oh, fetch my smelling salts. Sugar, nobody cares anymore. People want fun. They want a song like Zing Zing Zoom Zoom. Who left a vacuum in the powder room? Peggy Sanders sold a million records with that tune last year. Would you at least listen to my newest song? After all, you're all that always all-encompassed me for always and forever. Uh, just from the title, I need a bromo. Alice, bromo. Bromo? Alice. What were we talking about? My songs. Great. Let's talk about something else. How about that Stan Musial? What about him? I don't know. I don't follow baseball. Look, baby, I don't mean to rush you, but out in the waiting room, I got the two guys who wrote My Combo Plays Mambo and our hit is Namba Wambo. Come back and see me when you're out of the hearts and violins business. Maybe he's right. I need to be more commercial, but I can't forget what Jerome Kern said to me. I don't believe we've been introduced. Wait, that could be a song. I don't believe we've been introduced, but you're as memorable as Proust. I have to work on this. Meanwhile, you listen to the nose talk about La La Land, plagiarism, and L.L. Bean. And now to discuss his memoir about his years as Ryan Gosling's fluffer, Colin McEnroe. I haven't actually... I just wrote. I would just like to say I just wrote that joke to make Jacques Lamar laugh. That's the only reason it worked. That's in there. I'm so it's jealous. A very cheap line, but um, all right. So welcome to the nose in studio with us, uh, James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Jacques Lamar, senior project uh, manager at Buzz Engine and a sucker for a cheap joke. Irene Papoulis, much more high-minded, teaches writing at Trinity College. Uh, most of our show is going to be devoted to things that begin with LL, uh, La La Land, and LL Bean. Um, we didn't plan it that way. Fate intervened. So we're going to begin with La La Land. Uh, La La Land uh, tells the story or asks the question, uh, can two really attractive, straight, white, healthy people get everything they want out of life? As such, it's a nail biter. Um, I, I kid. I kid because I love. Uh, maybe we should just begin with a little bit of music from uh, from La La Land. Uh, this, I believe, is called. Is it called Play the Set List? Is that what it's called? I think it might be called that. Anyway, here it goes. Hey. <clears throat> Bill, thanks for having me back. You're welcome. I want you to know you're looking at a new man. Good. Man that's happy to be here. Excellent. Very easy to work with, man. Okay. And you're going to play the set list. Happy to. Even though I don't think anyone cares what I play, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if by anyone you mean anyone other than me, that would be correct. I care, and I don't want to hear the free jazz. Right. Okay. Although I, I, I thought in this town it worked on a sort of one-for-you, one-for-me type system. How about two for you, one for me? How about all for you and none for me? That's perfect, yes. Great. Okay. Okay, mutual decision then. Right. Made, made by me. Right. And I sign off on it, so. Whatever. Tell yourself what you want to know. Well, welcome back. There's a nice way to say that, Karen. 
All right. We're actually enjoying this. Uh, okay, that wasn't a song, as you could probably tell. That actually is a bit of dialogue between Ryan Gosling, who plays a thwarted and frustrated jazz pianist uh, who's trying to make it in L.A. at a time when the, the good venues are being converted to tapas and samba places. Uh, and his opposite – that's J.K. Simmons, you could probably tell – as a not particularly sympathetic uh, owner of such a venue. Uh, his, uh, the romantic lead, of course, is Emma Stone. Uh, she is trying to become the kind of movie icon, the kind of movie siren who is offered free coffee, which she declines to accept. Uh, and the two of them, uh, they meet cute, kind of, on the 405. Uh, and their story, I'm not, Jock, I'm not doing a good job of this because, because my heart's not in it. So... <laughs> Uh, this is a movie. Should we, should we just fess up to the audience where, okay. where we stand yeah, on Yeah, I this? think we should all just okay. go around the table. I, I'm, I, by the way, I don't really dislike this movie or anything. I just don't care about it one way or the other. <laughs> and I've pledged that when James gets it and can play it on his really terrific equipment, I will go and see it and see if listening to it on crappy, tinny multiplex speakers uh, with you know uh, a bulb that should have been replaced on the projector uh, may have contributed to my malaise. But anyway, I don't really care about this movie that much, but, but, but Jock, you do. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Um, you know, I don't know if we want to get into the reasons why, but... We will eventually. Yeah, yeah, but I really <laughs> You can't really keep them secret it. for the whole show. If that's no, 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 no. But I, I didn't know if we were just giving a quick yeah. analysis. I think of, a quick analysis not, is good. Yeah, yeah. So, James? Yeah, I loved it as well um, for lots of reasons. Um, actually, oddly enough, not entirely because it's a musical, but I really liked it. All right. And? Yeah, I have to say, when I saw the Golden Globe, I watched the Golden Globes and I saw I get all those awards and I thought, I'm going to hate this movie. And I think it's <laughs> superficial. I don't like the actors. It's going to be terrible. And I, 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 hate to, I hate to say it, but I loved it too. Okay. Well, no, I don't mind being the lonely skunk at the, at the garden party. Uh, I, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> So, so let's. I think the word you were looking for is wrong. Right. Well, there's, there's, there's no way to be wrong. Reas, reasonable people may differ about this. this is true. Uh, and I certainly have encountered a lot of people who share my sense of mehness about this. All right. So let's talk a little bit about this because maybe you guys can also help me understand what I'm missing here. To me, one of the big questions is why is this a musical? Um, you know, we have, we have in the cast. Uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, who don't have any demonstrable chops either. I mean, you know, they they've been gotten up to speed, right? They can they can get a song over, you know, they can kind of dance. Ryan Gosling looks at his feet, which is a little disconcerting. But but is Jacques? Is it partly? Is that partly? In, I, I'm because I'm wondering: were they chosen just because they're big bankable movie stars, or were they chosen because Damien Chazelle, the very young director of this, is trying to say, well? rather than having these people with superhuman powers like Fred Astaire, I'm trying to make a musical about normal people, kind of normal, normally talented people anyway, who sing sometimes. Well, you know, I, A, I disagree about the chops because uh, Emma Stone did Cabaret on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not her her first musical. Um, I think they're like Trump cabinet nominees who did <laughs> Cabaret on Broadway. I mean, they pretty much ran everybody into that role. It's yeah, like, but she she was well reviewed yeah. in it, and I watched a clip of her of her doing uh, performing the song Cabaret. And you should she, have seen Betsy DeVos because she was tremendous. <laughs> anyway, continue. Uh, so, um, you know, I I felt like, uh, you know, in terms of of why them, I mean. A, I had to go look up whether or not it was Ryan Gosling playing the piano, and he actually oh, yeah. is playing the piano, and mm-hmm. he is singing and and acting and and dancing. So I think that you know, in terms of 
you know, is he at a level of being a Gene Kelly-esque singer-dancer? No. Is he a better actor than Gene Kelly? Probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Emma Stone is so utterly, utterly, utterly charming in this film. And her her eyes are amazing mm-hmm. to watch. They're absolutely yeah. captivating. And And so I think the fact that they aren't traditional – you know, musical movie musical performers. You know, we're living in a generation that hasn't seen traditional musical, you know, movie musical performers. Uh, you know, the the and and the ones that have have come on screen in recent years have been transfers of things that have been hits on Broadway. So I thought the fact that it was an original story that juxtaposes uh, nostalgia and in a very modern context was interesting. Um, by the way, I'm happy to step over the uh, line across the aisle, whatever, uh, to join all of you in your admiration for Emma Stone. I think she's amazing. I think her face is really fun to watch. She actually in some ways has a face that you could imagine maybe in a 1930s, you know, 40s, 50s musical. She looks a little bit like Vivian Blaine who was in uh, State Fair or something like that. But her, she's – yeah, her face is just an incredible map of emotions. So James, you said you liked it for reasons that may have less to do with it being a musical and more to do with something else. What's the something else? Well, the something else is that to me it's an attempt to do something really different and maybe create its own genre in a way. Um, there's a there's a number of things that struck me on that level. One is that um, this idea that most people who go to the movies now have not seen a musical in a in a theater that was sort of in the style of the musicals that are being sort of twitted in a sense in La La Land, mm-hmm. and so they're seeing something new and the actual sort of uh, hidden actor in the film is Los Angeles itself, which Los Angeles is just on the cusp, I think, in the last 10 years or so of actually having something of an identity as a place that is not just a a conglomeration of the towns, the the Hollywood or Santa Monica or or whatever of of the whole metropolitan area, that Los Angeles itself, calling it La La Land, um, is actually linking with the sort of derogatory term of, of, of sort of implying that there's nothing serious there, there's nothing, it's rootless, and there's nothing going on there that you really want to stay with, and people come there for opportunity, and then they leave. But this actually attempted to sort of actually make a story out of being in that city, and with good actors, and with a uh, actually an interesting plot about the whole idea of where you belong, and what you get to do, and what your illusion are and where they take you and it's also happens to have what I uh, some musical numbers I really liked and I just felt a freshness about it that this was something unexpected that um, a, a person who could actually create something like that that I could could sort of see – I I often talk about this business of meeting with the investors, you know, explaining what you're doing. And um, I can imagine this being very hard to explain to investors and to the major studios. (laughs) Notably, this doesn't come from a major studio. It's it's one of the smaller studios. Um, It's something that when they actually got to do it, they actually had an idea to take it somewhere somewhere different and give it an identity. And it's actually been adopted by the very people you would expect to probably sneer at it. 
which um, I thought was another neat aspect. Of to it. say nothing of the fact that Damien Chazelle, the guy who directed it, the, the true auteur of this, is all of 31 years old, would have been younger making it, and a young-looking guy, too. Uh, I mean, he, he, he looks even younger than 31 years old. Um, I saw him give a speech at the New York Film Critics Circle Awards last week where he gave this lovely speech where he talked about his going into New York with his mother, grew up in New Jersey, and just seeing every musical he could get his hands on. He's not an ignoramus about this at all. Quite the opposite. I mean, he's just, you know, steeped in this stuff. He particularly talked about a 1927 silent movie called Seventh Heaven, I think, with Janet Gaynor, um, you know, and talked about it being an inspiration for this movie. I, I mean, when he talked, I wished so much that I liked this movie better. Maybe Cine Studio, when it runs, it can persuade me. But so, Irene, you went in a little later, so a whole bunch of different expectations have been kind of batted back and forth. I don't know how much that had to do with sometimes if you go in with low expectations, you like something better. That's true. There, but and it was also a rain. I saw it yesterday, and it was raining, and it was so. It's true that the place was really was so beautiful, and it, it was good being in California. But um, I, I also felt like it. it I, I, I kind of disagree with Jacques about like I didn't really love the acting. I sort of felt like it was to me it was sort of miscast. I didn't like the. I liked Emma Stone for the most part, but I but her dancing didn't seem fluid and like the scene where she did Iran in the beginning and she was supposed to be making fun of it but I just felt like no don't do it like that don't do it like a 12 year old you just described the one scene I really liked a lot you're kidding (laughs) but really did she was mocking him I know she was mocking it but I don't know I just uh, anyway so but um so, uh, but I think, and and also I don't get the Ryan Gosling thing. Uh, you know, I just I just felt like he was so he was so. I, I, there's one movie that I love him in, the Lars and the Real Girl. He was so good in that. I thought, but um, I I didn't. He wasn't. But nevertheless, I there was there was like a a, a spirit, like an, an an emotional and an something something about like I'm a naive movie goer. Like I just like the emo, whatever emotions a movie is gonna. Engender in me, and usually it's char- deep characterization and plot of some sort. I didn't really get that from this, but there was just something about the spirit of it that emotionally really spoke to me, and it had to do something with the plot. I thought the ending was great. Well, John, but, one, one thing, you know, just to build on what she's saying a little bit, this mm-hmm. movie d- depends on its stars more than any movie I can think of just about, except for movies that don't have anybody else in them. But, I mean, there's sort of these two people. There's John Legend, who's in a very minor role. I also have a problem with this way this movie uses African-American musicians as scenery, but that's a separate issue. But really, it's just the two of them. There really aren't other characters in this movie. And that's another way that it differs from those great MGM spectaculars where suddenly out of nowhere, the Nicholas Brothers would show up and you go, oh, here come the Nicholas <laughs> Brothers. That's so great. There's, you know, if you don't like these two people, you've got a long movie ahead of you. Yeah, well, and, you know, I mean, his character is a little bit grading and i think that she you know uh you know uh i think there's there's a there's the push and pull of these two artists you know they're they're artists as well and they're they're artists who are committed to forms that are not valued in los angeles so like when she puts on her her play and when he's going to jazz clubs and they're you know there's very few people there and i it's funny that that you um, that you talked about the use of of African Americans as as background props or decoration, or whatever, and and I know that you didn't like the opening number of the film, but what struck me about the opening number of the film was the incredible diversity of the people mm-hmm. who were dancing on the freeway, and the you know the first person who who sings is this uh, what looks to be a Southeast Asian woman, 
And then there's, you know, a brief little thing of flamenco dancing. And then there's an African-American man who's, who's uh, um, break dancing. And, and I'm sitting there going, you know, this feels to me like, you know, an MGM musical, they all would have been white. Mm-hmm. They all would have been white. True. And so I knew that we were instantly in a, a universe that was taking from tropes, uh, taking tropes from the MGM musical, but inserting them in in this modern context. And his friend that got married. His friend. The, that, yeah. An intera- it was an interracial couple. Yeah. yeah. And then at the end. Sorry, I'm going to do a little spoiler here. There's we, a we, dream ballet. <laughs> when is the last time we've seen a dream ballet? I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> we did debate whether it would be possible to spoil. I sort of don't think this is a spoilable movie unless you're the kind of person who really, really worries about spoilers. Uh, if you are, well, we're not going to say anything that will upset you. You would yeah. probably have seen it already if that was the case. No, you listen, really. James, I, had, I got <laughs> a guy who got really angry at me and said he will never listen to the show again because I gave away the – Ending of Easy Rider. So <laughs> oh. don't assume that just because. Recently, you mean? Yeah. Right. Yes, like within the last year. Um, That's a listener so. you didn't want. <laughs> but it turns out this. But, you know, James, I, mean, one th- I wanted to ask one thing about what James, you said maybe this is kind of almost the invention of a new genre. If that's the case, what is the new genre? What do you, what do you see kindling there? Well, the new genre, in a sense, is that I think that uh, Damien Chazelle sort of shows signs of being really part of a different generation of people who's not linked to the usual sources of investment, perhaps in in uh, filmmaking in in Hollywood, certainly. Um, but he also uh, the the film itself has a sense of almost being kind of like if I could maybe describe it as a sort of almost European sort of like style of, of of picking on a particular genre and then turning it on its head, doing something really different. Um, and uh, I think that um, by taking on um, things, that, expectations that people have, they hear that it's a musical, they hear that there's singing and dancing in it, but yet it has a different take. Like opening it with that dance on the, on the freeway, and I, I agree about the diversity. I mean, that was one of the things that to me, signaled that this was also about Los Angeles, that the the ethos of Los Angeles, which has really, really changed in the last 20 years. And it really is a much more diverse city. But it's not just more diverse in the types of people who live there. It's the people who are doing things, doing arts, um, uh, musicals, um, uh, theater, all kinds of things. There's a there's a much stronger sense of diversity in the art world generally, and that includes the film business. And so, this is something that to me is a, is is taking a new direction with a young person who's really thinking of um, uh, the musical as being a. It's just an aspect of the story that's mm-hmm. being told, and it doesn't have sort of signature songs, spotlight songs, and sort of drop dead uh, choreography, and it is a little unexpected that way. And it has little jokes going on and small things and small developments. And ultimately, though, the film is about character and character as modified by where they live and why they came there, which made it incredibly interesting to me. And the plot wasn't predictable. Exactly. Yeah, right, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of um, of The Umbrellas of Sherberg yeah, in yes, a lot of ways. Absolutely. I think that comparison gets made a lot, yeah. 
Um, I will just say one thing about yeah. When you say that, when you say that it doesn't have signature songs or drop dead choreography, and that that's actually part of the genre, I I feel better because as I was watching this musical, I was saying, where are the signature songs? Where's the drop dead choreography? I even feel as though that choreography on that storied four oh five freeway number is it's about what you'd expect if I told you that people were going to get out of their cars and dance. I, I don't I didn't see anything that blew me away, and I think the volume of the music is actually mixed down a tiny bit, so it's. Almost as though, yeah, they don't want to. They don't want to blow your doors off with this. I, I compared it as we were emailing to the, uh, and this is a very middle brow comparison, but to the Central Park scene in Enchanted, where you have this uh, Alan Menken and and uh, Stephen Schwartz song, which if you listen to it today, you will be, you know, thinking about it when you go to bed at night, not in a very happy way either. Um, but it really uses Central Park in this great way, and you really do see people doing fabulous kinds of singing and dancing, and you're and it's. It's hard not to be really swept up in this, but I didn't feel swept up in that opening freeway number. I mean, looking over you, I don't know how many musicals, Irene, or how what your relationship to the musical is. Right. I mean, no, I, 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 li- I like musicals, but I, I don't. I, I'm not an aficionado like you guys are. But um, and so I, I, like I say, I, 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 I enjoyed it, even though I thought I had a criticism of the dancing because I like dance. I watch a lot of dance, mm-hmm. and I just sort of felt like, ugh. But. Um, but I liked it anyway because because of, of the because of you know I was thinking you know I didn't like the movie uh, Midnight in Paris you know and in a way you could give the same kind of criticisms of a, of a certain kind of superficiality or something but I loved this so it's so I can't not even sure why all I can say is there's something about the spirit though I also want to say that her work got so much less attention than his and that bothered me you know it was sort of like oh yeah yes. she's doing this oh it's over you know and her only sharing of it was the end. You know, and he just said like, "Oh, great, that's great, babe. Okay, now let's go have dinner." You know, or something like that. Whereas his that's, work—that's a criticism we, that has been. A level, there's a very interesting review in the Los Angeles Review of Books, LARB, saying exactly that. I, I hadn't picked that up because I'm a sexist. It's babe. a gender thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's it is a criticism. Well, before we go much further, let's hear uh, one of those either signature or non-signature songs. I would say if there is a signature song. Uh, from it, it, it is this one. And if it wasn't, then the Golden Globes made it the signature song by playing it every time the movie won one of its seven Golden Globe Awards. Uh, so here is City of Stars. City of Stars, are you shining just for me? that I can't see Who knows Is this the start of something wonderful Or one more dream That I cannot make true I feel like I could just play that to the jury as my summation uh, of my side. But, but see, then that's just me. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we're sort of back to that point, yeah. too, where 
to me, this song, the music is so underwhelming to me. It's a, uh, one of the other movie musicals that I've really not very li- liked very much in recent years was Once. And this song sounds a little bit like that really annoying song from Once that I sort of feel like almost, you know, a reasonably what, good. the one good song in Once? Yeah, that's a horrible song. Though. Oh, it's a good song. An eighth grader <laughs> could write that song. I mean, it really is the kind of song you would, if you gave it to, to told a bunch of eighth graders in a class to write a song. And I should say I'm talking about the movie, not the musical. I have not seen the musical uh, once. The musical is not going to make you any happier. Or not going to make me <laughs> any happier. The way the Falling song slowly was that the name of the song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the way that the, listening to it now, I just felt like you know, it's kind of like you tell your friend to sing you a song, and they sing you a song, and it's so nice that they're singing you a song, even though they're not a great singer or anything. But there's some something sort of intimate about the the way that the the sort of softness of the voice and the lack of richness to that's it. A, that's a great yes. explanation. I yeah. love that, actually. You, the, you guys have made me like this movie just by talking about it in a way <laughs> that I didn't by seeing it. Well, and I, oh. you know, the thing is, I uh, I saw it a few weeks ago, and I went in with really no expectations. I had seen, you know, some some trailers, but the trailers actually didn't, other than dance, never showed anyone singing. And so I knew that it was. It looked like it was going to be kind of visually spectacular, but I didn't know what to expect from the music. And I, I wasn't blown away by the music, although I, you know, I enjoyed it in context. And then I was, then I decided to, you know, stream the soundtrack. There's two soundtracks. There's one that's all the instrumental stuff, and then there's one that's that's all the, the songs with vocals. And I was. Uh, surprised how much of it came back to me, visually listening to it. Um, and then when I saw it uh, again last night, so I would be adequately prepared for this discussion, because um, that's my level of commitment to your I, yeah, audience, I'm Colin. Impressed. I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that I was actually finding more in the score than I thought was there. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's one of those things that actually uh, may reward repeat viewing, um, you know, like I, uh, you know, uh, I saw Manchester by the Sea and I saw Moonlight, and they're both amazing films. But I don't know that I would rush to see them again. But I was happy that I saw La La Land again. Yeah, I I agree with that actually, and I think you know there's a subtlety that to this film that uh, you alluded to, Colin, about the initial number and the music not being right in your face. It's actually sort of like there's there's a kind of low-key quality to the way the sound is done. Uh, it, the whole technical side of the film, I think, is interesting for that reason, that um, whereas in the past in major musicals you would have the uh, the the songs recorded on a much brighter and and mm-hmm. more full range level in a studio, and that would be applied to the soundtrack, and that would take over at that point in the film. And um, this clearly has attempted to. I'm sure that they did do these songs in the studio as well, but they they, they tended to do it in a way that didn't make it stand out in that sort of in your face way. And then there's the other side of it, technically, which is visually that this is a film that really shows the use of newer, very light, high-definition digital cameras which follow subjects in close-up very rapidly through the scenes. And that is a style that is completely absent from um, the era when musicals had to have you know, 600-pound cameras rolling on rails uh, and and you had a much more sort of formal setup, even if it didn't seem like in dance numbers it would sometimes seem like that was not the case, but it really was. 
And in this case, there are several scenes where, during songs where the camera angles and the changes in perspective are uniquely part of this new universe of, of, of creating these very, very hyper-real images very close up, but also um, amid that sort of closeness, there's the subtlety to the soundtrack. And I think as you, if you see it a second and a third time, you begin to see those subtleties, the way they play, that, that there are people who've worked on this movie who've really had a sense of that, I think, something right. different. We're going to have to wrap here just so we'll have time to talk about other things. We're going to drop uh, an L out of B, talk about uh, L.L. Bean instead of La La Land. We'll be back after this. City of stars Are you shining just for And I think we're back. Yeah, no, we were just talking about uh, Nocturnal Animals, which is playing in uh, James's Trinity Cine Studio tonight. I was telling, saying to Jonathan McNichol yesterday when we were doing this retrospective on Spielberg, who's 70 years old this year. You know, when Amy Adams is 70 years old, they'll be like, <laughs> it'll be, well, it's just it's going to be this huge thing. It's going to take forever to cover everything that Amy Adams ever did, uh, including Enchanted. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean, why is L.L. Bean in the news, you ask? Well, maybe you know already it's a bit of a sensation on social media uh, because, in fact, um, Donald Trump has uh, indicated that uh, this is his uh, favorite news store. Uh, he tweeted enthusiastically about it. Uh, and part of the reason for that is that one of the uh, heirs to the L.L. Bean fortune um, is a big Trump supporter. Uh, and this, in turn, has – although L. L. B., it's important to say L.L. Bean itself has not declared itself for Trump and she's just kind of one member of the board of directors as I understand it. Um, and uh, anyway, this has sort of occasioned, uh, Irene, a bit of a backlash. Uh, people are trying to figure out what to do with their outrage these days, people who don't like what they see forming on the horizon as the Trump presidency draws nearer and nearer. They tried voting. That didn't work. Uh, so what else can they do? And there's uh, even a new organization called Grab Your Wallet, which sort of lists and posts various retail outlets and, and producers of retail merchandise uh, who have something to do with Trump or some arguable connection to the Trump family uh, with the idea of giving you at least some sense of whether or not you would like to patronize them or refuse to patronize them. So I don't know. What do you make of the L.L. Bean furor? I, I think, you know, first of all, there is a lot of power in, in boycotts if they if they catch on. And um, but I think it's it's interesting because L.L. Bean is so sacrosanct to so many sort of liberal identified people, you know, and I mean, I don't probably don't know anyone who doesn't have some article of clothing from L.L. Bean. Jock, you don't. I don't, no. think, I don't think I do either. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe I do know. Actually, I know a lot of people who don't have. I don't uh, go but, clothes shopping. I'm really cheap. No, but how about like <laughs> online? Um, you've, you've never no. gone to the L.L. Bean catalog and ordered like a flannel no, shirt? No, it comes into our house. I think Arthur gets it. But yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I, I, I wait until someone gifts me clothes. Okay, well, that's <laughs> or, okay. Or my clothes are falling off me and I have to buy them. Well, the sweater you're wearing could be L.L. Bean. Maybe you just don't know it is. I got this, I um, think, from the discount army navy store in provincetown all right <laughs> I, well, I should before but, you continue okay. i should read the tweet from donald j trump thank you to linda bean of ll bean for your great support and courage people will support you even more now by ll bean so this is also i mean typically i don't remember 
I mean, there may have been some president who told me. <laughs> I remember George W. Bush telling me to go shopping, go shopping after yeah. 9-11. I don't remember that he told me where to go shopping. And probably that's the worst thing he could have done for L.L. Bean in terms of a lot. Because I think once it gets associated in people's mind, I think people are going to say, oh, I don't want to go to L.L. Bean because Trump supports it. You know, at least people on, on the other side. Um, and so it could be there could be a whole change around switcheroo in terms of L.L. Bean's patrons, you know, even though supposedly it's a company that has really good labor policies and, um, you know, it's it's one person on a whole board who supported Trump, but now she's very publicly supporting Trump. And um, it's a very, very tricky issue because what is it, you know, it's sort of, I sort of feel like um, we're, there's like a civil war in our country, you know, that, that goes on every level beyond the political level. It's a grow, you know, a growing people are growing, increasingly taking being on one side or the other in every arena, you know. And if it's if it's if it's LL Bean being politicized, wow. Well, you know? I can't wait to hear James on this because his um, his uh, rants on the intersection of commerce and politics are always very inter interesting. I will quickly read, uh, yeah, the, the defense in Slate is L.L. Bean is one of those companies with a sterling brand reputation that seems well-deserved. It's one of the largest uh, employers in Maine, uh, even manufacturing several products there, and it takes a deeper interest in labor rights than most apparel companies. It has donated millions of dollars to conservationist and educational causes, uh, and uh, its products are great. Well, we can talk about that. Uh, and this is my favorite part. Uh, if they don't last, L.L. Uh, Bean has an insane customer satisfaction policy that allows you to return or exchange disappointing items at literally any time. Whether they will take Donald Trump back or not uh, is uh, – I mean, he's a disappointing item, right? Uh, anyway, uh, James, so what about this? I mean, I don't know. Is, is this the way to go? Well, I think that they – anybody who's – I was saying that anybody who's selling stuff – You've got to be careful what you're what you're actually projecting. I mean, I agree that LL Bean has very carefully cultivated uh, the right image, certainly, and they have good labor policies and they've done a lot of good things. But they also have actually more than one board member who has funded things like homophobia in Maine, and um, you know, really? these. Yeah, okay. I mean, uh, <coughs> I th I think that. You have to really look at the whole spectrum, and, and unfortunately for them, they're being given one of those periodic lessons that's necessary that says that, okay, we, you, if you're going to get involved politically, you better be able to explain yourself. And they haven't really explained themselves other than to say, well, this is just one board member, and, but this one board member has brought them right to the bullseye by actually taking one of the most controversial figures on the planet and getting that person to say, go shopping there. So all of a sudden, now their shoppers are not necessarily going to be thinking of the warm and fuzzies of their products. They're going to be thinking also that there are people associated with the company who maybe don't agree with them. And so it becomes political. And for anybody who's running a commercial enterprise, you have to know what you're getting into. I mean, there, there, there are times certainly when, you know, if you're, uh, if, if you're running any kind of a business, if you sympathize with a certain group and it becomes known, then you have to realize that you're going to have to engage with that and have to deal with it. And that's what they're learning. Um, I mean, personally, I found the activities about homophobia in Maine and particularly their asinine governor, I, I feel that that's something I don't want to support. So I wouldn't go shopping there. But that, that's something you make a decision about. But it's important to educate yourself. And this is part of the education, really. But I think I think the difference here is a L.L. Bean as a company 
is not giving money to political campaigns. They are not supporting, uh, you know, particular candidates. And um, and I think Trump's tweet wasn't just by L. Bean. It was because she was encountering criticism for giving to mm-hmm. his campaign, which she, you know, presumably did a bit on the down low by giving it to a super PAC, what she thought was a super PAC. Um, and because it's now under investigation that her her contribution was likely illegal, and my guess is she was not made aware that what she was doing was illegal. Um, so the the thing is, a board of any organization is made up of individuals who are going to have their own preferences and persuasions and political beliefs and whatnot. I think, you know, like I was comfortable with my choice not to support businesses like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby because that was the owners of those companies who were asserting their homophobic beliefs on on the businesses and or or um, you know uh, evangelical Christian beliefs on the businesses and in such a way that um, that I was like I don't want those people to personally benefit from my money I don't feel the same thing is going on here with LL Bean it's it's also extraordinarily and I think this is back to what Irene was saying it's hard for you Jacques to bo- boycott Chick Fil A and Hobby Lobby because. The orbit of your life was never going to take you there in the first there's place. A, there's a Chick-fil-A one, yeah, that's Chick-fil-A. going up within yeah. a mile of my office yeah. now. Yeah. on Park Road. And oh, there's right. one okay. going into the casino. Yeah. And would, you, would you have been tempted to go to Chick-fil-A? Like, you know, if, there were, if they were? No. I mean, the I mean, thing like is, I, oh, they I understand that, that they've gotten better. But yeah. I think that, it, you know, the owner is probably still the same jerk who's still giving to the same things but more discreetly. But, Jacques, do you think – you know, now that yeah, I think it's definitely true that every board event, anything you you would find people giving all kinds of political dis- donations, you would disagree with. But now that it's become public, now that it's become an issue, and sort of now that people are more aware of it, does that change anything? I mean, the thing is, I've I've been I've worked for nonprofits for years that have a mix of liberal and conservatives on those boards, and you know i i'm not going to judge the value of the organization based on the composition entirely of you know the political beliefs of its board we have a right to donate and support the candidates and causes we want i think when it comes to a business or the owner of a business like the guy from barilla i haven't bought barilla since mm-hmm. uh and and so i think that you know i understand that people are lashing out at L.L. Bean because they are so angry about Donald Trump. And all it takes is for that man to send out a tweet to get everyone (laughs) riled up. Um, I just – I feel like this particular situation is is different. You know, I do think also, Irene, you know, what I I was referring to more was – the, you know, I, I don't know whether Chick-fil-A would be ever a part of your life or not. But, I mean, L.L. Bean really is a part of the lives of a lot of the same people who would be outraged uh, about something like this. And as James has suggested, the fuse is lit these days. It's burned down a little bit already. All it took, if you remember, a little bit earlier in the year, I think I had this right, uh, for an executive from New Balance Shoes to say something about it. He liked Trump's stance on the trans-Pacific 
trade partnership was something like that. And the world went crazy and suddenly New Balance sneakers were bad. And then and then and I'm wondering about this with L.L. Bean, white supremacists then declared that, that they were going to start buying New Balance sneakers, which I found very alarming because I wear New Balance sneakers. They happen to be the kind of sneakers or running shoes that, that I like the most. And you sort of wonder about L.L. Bean. I mean, if it did get this stain, there you are on a Trinity, Trinity campus, you know, putatively full of young people wearing and L.L. Bean stuff with L.L. Bean backpacks and suddenly does it become a mark of shame? Like, you know, do you have to like put some tape over the logo or something? Well, yeah. And if it does, what is what, you know, that's why I think, you know, we're, we're having in a way there is a way to resist. Like it, there, there aren't that many. It's if you really want to resist, if you really feel like there's something drastically g- drastic going on in this country, there is a power in that. You know, and so maybe that's maybe that's not such a well, bad thing. There's there's also the issue of how you express yourself if you are on a board or your own. I mean, obviously, people have a right to support who they want, and they give a political contribution. And in in a sense, it's a private matter, but it's not because there are public records. But however, if you come out and you make statements that are public and you start to advocate, which I think Linda Bean has done, I think that that's rather different then the then it does affect the company yeah it does but become is part it because of because it's her her last name is bean uh well, you that know certainly it, makes it worse I well mean, that yeah. makes it worse yes we're absolutely. getting we're getting a facebook message i will boycott ll bean until linda bean is off the board it's not about the company but the person i, I do want to say that uh i went on grab your wallet which is the kind of compendium site for uh, this kind of consumer resistance and it, it seemed like a rather blunt instrument i mean I, in fact i wish it had the kind of nuance that james is talking about where I would know that two members of the yeah, board – it, instead, it's got like Amazon is on there because like right. they sell Ivanka Trump glitter tops or something, you know, I, I, it's, which to me is wildly at variance with – I mean, I understand that Amazon just has a lot, a lot of retail crap just pouring through its pipeline, whereas, you know, statements from members of the board seem to – I mean, you know what I'm saying, James. I wish that yeah, this I, were a more I, subtle I understand, instance. and yeah. I think that's part of the problem we're living with right now is because of the state of social media and the way that news is spread around. It, everything is a blunt instrument about revelation. Um, and there is nuance, obviously, about you know somebody's choice to support somebody in particular. But you take the case of somebody like Peter Thiel in um, in, in in Silicon Valley. I mean, how many people really know his name or know you know what the, what is the product he's associated with? Well, he's got his fingers in a lot of stuff. He's mm-hmm. very rich, and he's he spends a lot of money supporting some pretty reactionary causes, and he's very much out of step with the rest of Silicon Valley. But most people are not really aware of that, but it, it, because it's too complicated to put in a tweet. Be. Maybe we should Well, be. we should. I, d- I would argue that very strongly. But you look at something like this, which involves first the Bean name. She's Linda Bean. Then you have uh, the tweet from, from, from Trump himself. And you've got all of the conflagration ingredients right there so that then the, nu- the subtleties and nuances can't be there. And I would say that a company like L.L. Bean probably ought to have foreseen this and, and you know, sort of been more ready than they, they clearly are. And that they're, they're, they're just, you know, like they have a lot of good things about them, but they, they clearly are not ready to deal with some of the nuances of this. We've got to grab a break here. Uh, just so we'll have time for endorsements. Also, Jacques and I have to get to an REI sale this afternoon. Um, some of the cute <laughs> stuff that we want to pick up. <laughs>
I ordered a Donald Trump puppet from L.L. Bean, but all it ever says to me is, you're the puppet, and I am totally not the puppet. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Special thanks to Greg Hill. Our interns are Fred and Ginger Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Donald O'Connor. You can subscribe to The Colin McEnroe Show on any podcast platform. Enjoy our show about protest music on Martin Luther King Day. We'll be back on Tuesday with a show about the Constitution. And now, back to Colin. All right, now it is time for our panel to recommend things. Uh, James, uh, you can go first. Um, well, one happy circumstance in stores where I live, um, Toasted has opened a new storefront there, and uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, it's, uh, the, if for people who don't know, they started with a truck in Hartford, I believe, with very good uh, toasted sandwiches. And now they've just opened up in the store center, and there's one downtown in Hartford, I think. Um, highly recommended. And one other thing, a little unusual, at Cine Studio, we're actually showing a film, on film, 35-millimeter film, um, Marinetti's film, The Forest for the Trees. Uh, uh, Marinetti is the uh, German filmmaker who made Tony Erdmann, which mm. is just playing now as a comedy. And The Forest for the Trees is, a, is, an, is another dark comedy and a really good film, but also an opportunity to see something on physical film, 35-millimeter film for a change. You did keep the old projectors. Good for you. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Irene, what have you got? Oh, that sounds good. Um, two things. One, um, a new restaurant, an- yet another new restaurant in West Hartford called India, which is in- really fresh, delicious, wonderful Indian food. Um, and also, I'm reading, I love Tre- Trevor Noah, and I'm reading his book. It's called Born a Crime. Uh, and it's, if you want to have, it's not, it's not like, you know, great literature or anything, but it's ni- really nicely written, and it's really about, he brings you into apartheid South Africa in a really engaging and interesting way that I think would also be good for, you know, advanced high school students and, and anyone who, who wants to hear his stories because it's a, he had a pretty, he has a fascinating background um, in South Africa being half black and half white, uh, but that's just the beginning of it. All right, Jacques, what have you got for us? Uh, I would like to recommend that people try out another new restaurant. Um, uh, uh, Jamie Bear McDonald has opened Blind Pig Pizza in his uh, old location in downtown Hartford on Arch Street since he moved and expanded the Bear Smokehouse Barbecue over onto Front Street. Um, I did not get to go to the soft opening that I want to do because of the snow the other evening, but everything that he has been putting up shows that they're really thinking outside of the box in terms of uh, toppings and and offerings and whatnot. And so I'm seeing things like barbecued meats and kimchi and um, uh, I think they're doing also hot dogs or something as well or whatever. So it, it seems really fascinating. And it looks like they put a ton of care into the makeover, so it's going to be quite a different feel than than it was as Bear. So uh, Blind Pig Pizza is what I would recommend. All right. So um, apropos of our conversation about musicals uh, and A La La Land, I will tell you, first of all, I don't, usually I'm up to my hips in involvement in this. This year I'm not. But the Goodspeed musicals uh, this weekend, starting tonight, uh, they're doing their um, staged readings of new musicals. Uh, I believe the one that's up tonight is based on the Australian movie picnic at hanging rock how you make that a musical i don't know but it's really there it's fun to go to these are musicals in a very raw state uh but they bring some uh, pretty talented very young performers together to do these staged readings uh there's uh three of them uh, one on each of the days of this weekend starting tonight uh that could be a nice way to dip your toes kind of see really how hard it actually is to put together uh, a new musical in this day and age also uh, i'll mention a musical that i a uh, movie musical that i like better this year and james actually did screen 
screen it uh, at Sydney Studio. It's called Sing Street, uh, and uh, it's uh, British, and it's kind of um, a love letter to 80s rock music. Uh, even if you don't see Sing Street, at least go on uh, YouTube and uh, watch the song Drive It Like You Stole It, but it's going to make you want to watch Sing Street. Uh, and then lastly, I'm going to recommend, and probably the most passionately uh, of my recommendations, uh, and I think you can just get this on demand on HBO, but don't hold me to that. Um, the play Every Brilliant Thing is being uh, staged on HBO. This is a play by Duncan McMillan. It's performed by the amazing Johnny Donahue. Uh, it's a one-man show, except it's not. Have you seen this? Josh, no, no, it's, no. It, so I've Wait, never, is this the encounter? Or, no, 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 no. no. no, no, no sorry. I, it's called Every Brilliant Thing. It's about um, a boy whose mother is suicidal, and he tries to uh, deal with this by making a list of every wonderful thing in the world. And the list grows into seven figures, I think, by the time uh, you know many years have passed. But what Donahue does, and the director of this. Uh, adaptation, but I think it was done at the, well, it's shot at the Barrow Street Theater over three days, I think. I love the Barrow Street Theater in New York. And um, it's not giving anything away to, away to say that whenever Donahue needs a character, he just grabs somebody from the audience. And sometimes he expects them to do Quite a bit. You know, it's not just like sit here while I talk to you or something like that. Sometimes he expects them to participate in the conversations. And because it's kind of edited over the course of three different performances, they can pick the best audience participation. Uh, and some, some of the people from the audience really rise to the occasion. I, I've really not seen anybody do exactly what's done there in terms of working with an audience. I mean, you see lots of people do innovative things working with an audience. So it's, it is a heart-rending play, it's a, but it's also very, very funny. It's extremely funny. Donahue's a spectacular performer. It's the kind of thing I really would like grab somebody by the collar and say, come here right now and watch this with me. It's so life-affirming and also so sad. So and you saw so it on stage? No, I, just, I didn't see it at Barrow Street. I, the only thing I've seen is this HBO adaptation. Um, and it's wonderful. So, so do see it. Every brilliant thing. And speaking of brilliant things, thanks to Jacques Lamar and James Hanley and Irene Papoulis. We'll be back next week with a whole bunch of shows as we get ready for the you-know-what on Friday. I thought La La Land was going to make me feel better about life, and now love isn't real, and happiness is an illusion, and my dreams are dead, and the Affordable Care Act is being repealed in 2017. It's going great, you guys!